All right, well, beautiful singing as always. Uh, I love listening to uh, the congregation sing. And so uh, many thanks to Adam and to the rest of the band who uh, does such a great job of leading us in song. So we say this often, and I'll say it again, the main instrument that we have on Sunday mornings is the congregational voices. And so I really appreciate uh, Adam and his leadership um, and the rest of the team just to really try to emphasize that. So I've not met you. My name is Aaron, and I'm the pastor, preaching pastor here, and so glad that you're with us on this cool uh, fall morning. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 30. Our texture study today will be um, in verses 1 through 15, so the first half of chapter 30. And then as you're turning there, I know there's been some questions about, like, um, come up about this, the congregational prayer that we have in the beginning of the service, and so, you know, kind of how we go about doing that. And so just, if you're curious, so what we do is that we actually have, like, a spreadsheet and just kind of have, like, things that we're wanting to pray for and kind of work through um, different things in our life, uh, different churches that we know in the area. We use a thing called Operation World, which is a great prayer guide that just kind of helps guide us. And so today we prayed for Russia because that was what we had there. Um, and so that's kind of how we go about doing that. But uh, as a reminder, that's not the only place that we pray as a church. And so uh, we have a pre-service prayer time at 9.30, and all sorts of stuff are being prayed in those services. And we really would love for as many of you to come join us in that time uh, as possible. Who knows how the Lord may be using those pre-service uh, prayer time, just to uh, build his kingdom and to put his glory on display. Okay, So, with all that being said, uh, look back with me at verse um, 1 of chapter 30 for this time here. I'm going to read verses just 1 through 6, and then I'm going to pray, as for the Lord's blessing on our time, and then we will get to work through this uh, passage. So, First Samuel 30, starting verse 1, I'll be reading out of the... It says, Now when David and Ziklag on the third day, the Malachites had made raid against Nagbug and against Ziklag. They overcame the Ziklag and burned it with fire. And taking captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, they killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives were also taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel, Abigail, the wife of, or the widow of uh, Naab of, of Carmel, and David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So that's God's word for this morning. Let's pray. Lord, it is good to be here. And uh, Lord, it's good to be around your word. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, please help me to be a good communicator of the text. We pray that through your word that you would indeed speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And to pray this, use this time in our lives to conform us into the image of Christ. And to pray that you use this time just to bring much glory to him. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so when I was first in vocational ministry, so I was a young associate pastor. And during that time, I was connected to a retired pastor who was actually in vocational ministry for something like 50 plus years which meant, you know, in that time, he really had seen it all. And as I connected to this retired pastor, we met over a handful of times and worked through different aspects of ministry that can and will come up in church life. And one of the conversations that we had that I've continued to reflect upon, especially over the course of our study of 1 Samuel that we've been in for, I guess, almost a year and a half now, was a conversation uh, revolving around picking your battles, which we know is just not an easy thing for us to do, not just in ministry, but just life as a whole. Picking battles is not an easy thing to do. It's not easy to know how to do it and when to do it. 
No. The reason why I've thought about that conversation with his retired pastor throughout our study of 1 Samuel is because this pastor used David and Saul, you know, two central characters in 1 Samuel, to help illustrate uh, some things he wanted to press upon me. So with Saul, as we've continued to learn throughout our study, right, he is so twisted around in his desire to keep his control, his power, that he kept fighting like the wrong battles with the wrong motives. Where time and time again in our study of 1 Samuel, uh, Saul sought to fight battles against David, even though David is his most trusted, loyal, faithful servant. Yet over and over again, throughout our study, we read Saul and his obsessive quest to take out David in his life, fighting battle after battle against David, which over time led to Saul's complete and utter uh, demise, which you may remember we read about in chapter 28 a few weeks back, as Saul sought a witch for counsel. He had wrong battles, wrong motives behind the battles, that in part led to Saul destroying himself. But then with David and his example, we actually see a little bit of good and bad in his model. So at times in 1 Samuel, when David was seeking the Lord, we see that he was like fighting the right battles with the right motives. And just think the famous story of David and Goliath that we talked about so many times in our study. How David engaged in battle with the giant. And that was the right thing for him to do. David fought the right battle for the right reasons as he's doing so for the glory of God. By the way, it's something I mentioned, I think, in the past. That really should have been Saul. He should have been one who fought Goliath, but he didn't. He didn't fight that battle. It's also part of his demise. And the model of David wasn't just that he fought the right battles, which was a good model for us, but also moments that David could have fought battles, but he didn't. I think about the two times in our study when David didn't engage in battle when he spared Saul's life. So this is chapter 24 and chapter 26. David easily could have killed Saul. But he trusted the Lord. And David spared Saul's life, who was the anointed. And David even instructed others to also spare Saul's life, just trusting that in God's time, he would be the one who would bring judgment to Saul. So he didn't fight that battle. Do you remember our text from last week? David could have engaged in battle against Saul and his army in chapter 29, but providentially God removed him from that battle. That wasn't one for David to engage in. So at times, we can see in the life of David, the right, the best thing to do was actually to not engage in battle, to not pick a fight. So there's there's good examples from David. However, if we were to keep going in the story of David into uh, the book of 2 Samuel, or if we read 1 Kings or 1 Chronicles, we see as great as David was, he actually wasn't perfect on knowing what battles to fight. In fact, he had some awful failures on this front. So as you may remember, near the end of David's life and reign, he desired to build for the Lord a permanent temple. However, the Lord prevented David from doing so by telling David that he just simply had too much blood on his hands, which I think in part implies at times David probably engaged in the wrong battles, fought the wrong fights. But then on the other side, arguably David's greatest failure in life was the story of Bathsheba, a story that took place during a time when the kings were supposed to be away at war. But as you may remember, in that story, David wasn't there. He didn't go engage in the battle that he should have fought. Rather, he was at home, engaging in sinful behavior that the prophet Nathan had to confront him with that led to David penning the famous words in Psalm 51. So really, some of David's biggest triumphs was he's trusting the Lord in ways that he properly understood the battles that he was to fight, the battles that he was not to fight, But then in David's greatest failures is when he's like trusting in himself and he got these realities wrong. Same for David. 
It wasn't always easy for him to know what battles he was to fight. Now, I say that all this morning to help set us up for our text today, which is a text that details a battle that we see that David was supposed to fight. This was something the Lord desired for David to do, uh, which, as mentioned, came uh, on the heels of a passage last week where David was providentially spared by the Lord from fighting the battle that he was not supposed to fight. So for us, hopefully, as we work through this passage this morning, we can find some insights when it comes to our own battles. Okay, so with that as our intro, look back with me starting at verse 1. As mentioned, we're going to work through verse 15 um, this morning. So verse 1, we read that David and his men arrived at Ziklag on the third day. And as a little bit of refresher, Ziklag, this is the area of the Philistines where David planted roots, which we read about in chapter 27. Three days, this is a reference to how long it took David and his men to make their way back home from about the 50-mile journey from where they were located in our passage last week, which was in the war camp of the Philistines, um, as the Philistines are about ready to go on attack against Israel, which was a battle that seemingly David actually wanted to participate in, which to say again, a battle that God providentially kept him from. Right? That was not David's battle to fight. And the Lord providentially kept David from that battle through some false accusations. Remember that? How the rest of the war camp, the Philistines, were making these false accusations towards David. And through those accusations, the Philistines sent David and his 600 men from the war camp back home to Ziklag. A three-day journey. In our text. As David and his men got back home, we see that they were not coming back to a place of rest and comfort where perhaps David and his men could process and unwind what just took place in the previous chapter. We see in the text, as David and his men came back home, they arrived to a place that was just raided by the Amalekites, as the Amalekites raided both Nigbug and Ziklag. Now, the Amalekites, these are people we actually met in chapter 15, and we learned that they were like a ruthless, evil people, a people that God actually commanded King Saul to wipe out, to fight that battle to the fullest extent, which you may remember Saul failed to do. And so now here his past disobedience is coming back to bring about great hurt, Great harm down the road here for David and his men and their families. In our text, such great harm, such great hurt. The end of verse 1, we see that the ruthless Amalekites raided Ziklag with such destruction that they burned the town down with fire. And not only that, we see that they even took captive all the women who were in the area and all the other people, whether they were small or great, our text tells us. As everyone in Ziklag was led off into captivity. Surprisingly, our text does tell us that the Malachites did not kill anyone as they, wiped, uh, as they took people off into captivity, which probably indicates here that the Malachites had a desire to put Ziklag into their service as slaves. Okay, verse 3. We read that David and his men, as he came back home to the burned-down empty house, their sons and daughters and wives were all taken captive. We see, understandably, that they now raised their voice in lament. There's sorrow, there's pain, there's anguish. And David and his men began to weep with such forceful, heavy tears that they wept until they physically could weep no more, having no more strength in them. Right? Tear ducts, completely empty. Now, Scripture teaches us there's a time to weep, there's a time to mourn, and this year, this fits into that instruction. Right? This is awful for them. Verse 5, which is there to help us see how personally devastating this was to David. We see that David's two wives are also among those who were captured and taken captive. So in this text, like, there's a lot of personal pain here for David, where no doubt David is weeping heavy tears himself. Keep going, verse 6. 
we read that David was greatly distressed. And not was he, only was he distressed because his wives were captured, which enough, or that alone would have been enough to cause distress. But in addition to the difficulty for David, we see that the people who were with him started to blame David for what had taken place. I mean, really, after all, David is the one who first led him to Ziklag in chapter 27. David is the one who led them to march at the Philistine army camp in chapter 29 before they're sent back home. So if it wasn't for David, how David was leading, I'm sure in their minds, right, their wives, their sons, their daughters, they all would be safe. They would still be with them. So the text, the people around David, this is his fault. He's the one to blame. And in their overwhelming grief, the people are like, they're bitter in soul, our text tells us. And they're looking for someone to blame, someone to take their anger on, out on. And for them, because the Malachites weren't present for them to take their anger out on, right, David becomes the target, the target of their frustration. So in the text, the people started to speak among themselves, asking among themselves, like, hey, stone David. Should we take him out? I think this year we might categorize this as like hurting people hurt people. And as the hurting people sought to take out the hurt on David, we see in the text that this situation that David was greatly distressed by actually is what was used by the Lord to finally bring David to his senses. And the fog of burnout that we talked about the last few weeks, the fog of burnout that he's fighting through, is finally fully lifted. Because we see that through this awful tragedy, David, in the text, strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, just a reminder for those maybe who are new to our study or maybe aren't with us as we went through chapter 27. This is in chapter 27, as mentioned, that's how David ended up in Ziklag in the first place. And in that passing, like, he was like, burnt out. Like, just completely burnt out from being on the run from Saul. So in his burnout, David began to take counsel in his own heart, which is never a good idea. And in the counsel of his own heart, he fled Israel to go into the land of the enemies, the Philistines. And as David fled Israel, we learned that he hired himself out and his men out to be soldiers of fortune for one of the leaders of the Philistines, a man named Achish. And as he worked through chapter 27, you may remember about halfway through, it felt like David started to come to his senses a little bit, that the fog of burden was starting to lift a little bit. It was about halfway through, David started to understand he just put himself in a real pickle. So through the back half of chapter 27, at least to me, it felt like David was like now trying to get himself out of the jam he put himself in, you know, leaving Israel to go work for his enemy. But how he tried to get out of the jam was really by trusting in his own strength, his own cunning, clever ability, where he plays like a bit of a game of deception with Achish, where David would attack one area, which, by the way, included attacks against the Amalekites, who no doubt in this scene here were exacting revenge on David. Yet, as he went back to Achish, David said, I actually went and took, uh, I actually attacked another place. Like, he was like falsifying what actually took place. And this led David to be able to deceive Achish into believing that he actually was a trustworthy and loyal servant to him. So in chapter 27, he said again, even though the fog started to lift a bit for David, he's still not fully right. In chapter 27, we get no indication that David is like resting in the strength of the Lord. Then in chapter 28, all of chapter 29, same thing. We get no indication that David was setting his heart to trust in the Lord. Rather, it seems like he's still like trusting in himself, trusting in his own strength, trusting in his own cunning ability to work himself out of the jam he was in. But now, finally in our text today, in the midst of great, awful, painful tragedy, where he's in an even deeper jam, people on the verge of stoning him, you see the fog finally, fully, lifted 
And David stopped trusting in himself to get himself out of the jam. And the text simply tells us, yet powerfully tells us, that he strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. And this isn't really the first time we read something along those lines for David since sparing Saul the second time in chapter 26. David found his trust, his strength in the Lord. We see in the text that as he strengthened himself in the Lord, that his actions followed, which they always do. Right? When our hearts are right towards God, we bear fruit in ways that we display the trust with our actions. So in verse 7 of our text, you want to take your eyes there. With his strength in the Lord, you see that David called over Abathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech. Because David desired Ahimelech would be help him to seek the Lord through the ephod. Now, the ephod is something we come up a few times in our study for Samuel. It's almost like an apron that the priest would wear. And through the ephod, the Lord would help his people determine his will on different situations. So in the text, this is exactly what David is doing here. He's looking for insight from the Lord, wisdom from God on what he was to do from there. Verse 8. As David inquired of the Lord, we see the insight he was looking for was should he or should he not fight the battle? In the text, Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I fight this battle? And if so, shall I overtake them? Now, this here, this is a great model from David for us. He's not making any assumptions on either end, right? Fight or not fight. But he's like humbly trusting himself to the Lord to do whatever the Lord would have him to do in this situation. Back half of verse 8. Lord responded to David's humble request for wisdom and insight by telling David, uh, Yes, David. Indeed. This is a battle you must fight. This is my will for you. Indeed, you are to pursue the Amalekites. And as you pursue them, David, take heart. My strength will continue to be with you. And in my strength, surely you will overcome them. And you will rescue all those who have been captured. And as David got this confirmation from the Lord, I think you just kind of feel like his confidence grow. Now for me this week, in my notes, I just wrote, like, he's back. David's back. He's back to trusting in the Lord rather than in himself. So in the text, somehow he was able to quiet the crowd who was entertaining the idea of stoning him. Somehow, through the Lord's strength, no doubt, David then was able to rally the people back to his side. As we keep going, we read that David and his men set out from the ashes of Ziklag, like all 600 men, to go engage in the battle to get their families back. And as David and his men traveled in the general direction where they assumed the Malachites were holding up, we see in our text they traveled about 12 to 13 miles from Ziklag to a brook of Besor. And as they got to this brook, like they stopped, I'm sure, to refresh himself with a cool drink, but also stopped because they had to try to figure out how to cross the brook. And as David and his men sat by the river bank, we see in verse 10 that David and 400 out of the 600 were able to forge a brook and to keep going in pursuit of the Malachites. But the remaining 200 stayed behind, simply because they were too exhausted to keep going. Now, for us, perhaps we can be a little critical of these men who stayed behind. Maybe, maybe there's some rightful criticism. In fact, our text next week is going to read that the 400 who kept going certainly were critical of the 200 who stayed behind. But let's remember that before this 12 to 13 mile march to get to the, this point where the brook is at, 
Right? David and his men just finished a three-day, 50-mile journey back from the Philistine camp. And just remember, like they revived back home to a home that's in ashes with their wives and their children captured. And let's just remember that they were weeping such grief that they wept that they had no more strength. So here at the brook, understandably, 200 out of 600, they're like completely exhausted. Like no strength to cross the brook, let alone to continue on in the pursuit. So for us, even though we might have some criticism for them, we ought to be gracious as well which we'll go back to our, um, next week. We'll see that. David's absolutely gracious towards these men. Let's keep going in our text today. Verse 11. As David and his 400 continued to pursue the Malachites, we see that providentially they came across a man from Egypt who was out in the open country, who also was physically exhausted. And as the men of David came across this man, we see that they brought the man of Egypt to David. You know, I'm sure to see what this man might know about the Amalekites and their current whereabouts. So in text, as David started to connect with this man from Egypt, we see that David graciously gave the man a good meal to enjoy. In the passage, bread, water, pieces of cake, of figs, a couple of clusters of raisins. Right? A very gracious act here by David. And as this man ate and drank, we see that his spirit was revived, like he regains his strength, which our text tells us was strength that was taken from him because it's been a long three days and three nights since he last ate anything or drank anything of substance. Verse 13, front take there. As this man started to regain his strength, we see that David began to quiz him a bit, you know, to figure out what he might know. From the text, man of Egypt. Uh, to whom do you belong? Uh, where are you from? And I'm sure underlying questions like, how did you get here all alone without food and water? David to this man, like, tell me, like, what is your story? To which the man from Egypt responds back to David, well, David, uh, you see, I'm a young man from Egypt, and I am a servant of an Amalekite, which, know about this piece of information here caused David's ears to, like, really perk up. And David, to answer your question, you find me here alone without food and water because three days back, I actually fell sick. And when I fell sick, my master decided that just to leave me where I was rather than continue to bring me along with him. You know, perhaps the master did this, not wanting to risk spread, uh, sickness spreading throughout the rest of the traveling party. Uh, perhaps the, man, or the master was concerned the sick man would slow down the rest of the travelers. Or perhaps maybe the master was thinking to himself, you know what, we have all these new slaves from where we uh, just, captured, um, just captured from Ziklag. So like, who cares about this man? We don't need him anymore, we just leave him for dead. You know, he's no value to us. But in our text, we see that this man certainly was a person of value to David because of further information he was about to give him. In verse 14, if I take your eyes there. You see, David, the group that I was with, so we actually just made a raid against Nigbud of the Kirites, uh, against that which belongs to Sudan, against Nigbud of Caleb, uh, which, which were tribes scattered through the southern region of the Philistine territory. And David, not only did we raid those places, just a few days back, we actually even raided Ziklag. And we burned it down to the ground with fire. And with this information here, David is now fully invested in the conversation. For us, we might label this information that David just got as like an evidence of God's good providential grace. Right? Just think about this. I mean, David and his 400 men just so happened to be traveling along the exact same path where this man was, who just so happened got sick three days prior who just so happened to know the exact information that David and his men were looking for. Verse 15, which is where we're going to end our text today. 
before picking up the rest of the story next week, we see that as David gets his information, he responds back to the man, oh, man of Egypt. Uh, yes, this is actually very important information that you just gave to me. Uh, in fact, this is the exact information I was looking for. And because of that, uh, will you take me down to this band? And as David made this request to the man of Egypt, you know, for him to take him to the location of his master, it feels like the Egyptian just realized he put himself into a real bind here. Like, up to this point, I don't know if he actually knew who he was talking to. Like, he didn't realize that actually who David was when David gave him food and drink, or drink, when David was getting information from him. But now, it's like the Egyptians, like, understand who he's talking to. And basically, he just confessed to David that he was part of the group that burned down David's home, who captured the wives and the sons and daughters. So in this text, you can just, like, feel this man, like, you know, trying to stuff the words back in his mouth, like, realizing what he just did. And as he figures out or realizes he put himself in the jam, we see that he responds back to David with a request of his own. Like he's trying to get himself out of the jam. Okay, David, uh, I will do that. Indeed, I will honor your request, and I will take you down to where the Malachites are currently located. But as I do that, David, please swear to me by God that you will not kill me. And not only that, David, please swear that you won't deliver me back to the hand of my master who will surely kill me for leading uh, me to you. So David, if you can promise me these things, then yes. I will take you down to this band. I will show you where the Malachites are located. I'll show you where you can find your family. As I mentioned this, we're going to hit pause for our text today. Right, David getting this incredible information, information he needed to go engage in a battle that the Lord was leading him to fight. Now, for the rest of the time here, per usual, I just want to circle back uh, to where we started, which was a conversation I had a few years back with a retired pastor on picking your battles. As I mentioned at the start, I think some of the best example for us to follow in the life of David is actually right here. Example is when he fought the right battles. Example is when he shied away from fighting the wrong battles. Now, before I give you some thoughts here in the text, and by way of application for us, let me say me point out the obvious. The battles that David fought or did not fight in 1 Samuel, like these are physical battles. Uh, physical war. And perhaps at some point, this might be an area that we also might have to discern. Like a physical alteration alteration is like the right or wrong avenue we are to engage in. So there's a great church father named Augustine referred to like a just war. So even though as Christians, like we long for peace, we want peace, because we live in a broken world, at times peace might only come by way of war, of fighting, like to stop tyrants or evil from like oppressing others, which is certainly true of our text today and other examples in 1 Samuel, where David rightly engaged in physical war, physical battle, to stop evil, to bring about peace. Now, I'll say it again, perhaps a time might come where we might have to discern whether or not we need to engage in physical battle, physical contact. But for our time here, by far the most common reality that we will face when it comes to battles, the battles that we need to engage in or not engage in, right, these are more like relational in nature, which, which are not easy for us to know if we are to do it or not do that. Like, we know we can't fight every relational battle. In fact, if we're like every fighting, every battle, like always fighting, always quarreling, most likely there's some type of like heart issue going on inside that needs to be addressed. But at the same time, like there are some relational battles we're fighting. So likewise, if we're never willing to battle, never willing to take a stand, never willing to engage in conflict, but also there's probably some heart issues going on that need to be addressed. 
So then, how do we know what battles are to fight? How do we engage in battles if we find ourselves in one? And from our text, I actually think there's a handful of principles that we can glean to help guide us when picking our battles. So first, pick battles with humility. So at my kids' school, one of the themes that they have for this year is to take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. So that's found in 2 Corinthians 10. And as that theme was given out to school, I've just kind of been working through that passage in my own heart, which really is a passage where Paul was engaged in a relational battle with false teachers who were causing like hurt in the church. Um, and these false teachers were like doubting Paul and the ministry that he had, like making false accusations towards him. And as Paul engaged in this relational battle, verse 1 of chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, tells that he was seeking to engage with them with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul was toast in this battle, which is something actually the false teachers are accusing of him. In fact, Paul was very bold with them, but, but it was like a humble boldness, which really ought to be true of us as well, when there are battles that we engage in. Like, we ought to be Christ-like in how we approach it, like, filled with humility. Now, in the text, I think David gives some good examples on how to be humble. To start, like, he's humble about the situation, right? He's met with this brokenness, because he saw what happened to Ziklag, to his family, to the families of the men. Like, he's, like, he's broken. Like, this is not good. This was awful. This is painful. Like, he's humble about the gravity of the situation, like, he didn't dismiss it. He didn't downplay the situation. Like, he, he humbly understood how awful it was. I mean, he himself weeped tears. In our text, as David is greatly stressed, he also is humble before his men. Even when his men started to point the finger at him, as he became the target of their hurt and frustration. In this text, I don't think we get any sense of David like engaging somebody like bickering back and forth with his men or like chastising him. Rather, the kind of sense I think we get is David like humbly understood that these men were broken, overcome with grief, with hurt, with pain. And I think we get the sense that like he's like gentle, humble, gentleness with them. Keep going in our text. Ultimately, David is humble before the Lord, which is his greatest example for us to follow in this passage. In the text, David humbled himself to the point that he strengthened himself, not himself but in the Lord. Which to say again, that is something that he wasn't doing the past few chapters. The past few chapters, he's trusting in his own strength. But now, here in our text today, in his humility, David is resting in the strength of the Lord, trusting that the Lord is actually the one who will fight the battle for him. In the text, he's humbled before the Lord as he prayed to the Lord, as he sought the Lord's wisdom on what he was to do whether he was engaged or not engaged, right? no assumptions on either end. So he prayed, he sought the Lord's wisdom, the Lord's direction, the humble thing to do. And for us, let's not under underestimate how important that is, even for us, when we're deciding to pick our own battles, to humbly step back, to pray to the God of all wisdom who gives wisdom generously to those who request it, now for us, let me mention, we don't have the ephod like David did to help determine God's will. But what we do have, we have God's word, which is there to instruct us. Amen. For those of us who are Christians this morning, you have the spirit of God living inside of you who guides you to all truth. Amen. And not only that, we actually have each other 
to help us discern decisions that we are to make, including whether to engage or not engage in, in a battle? Let me read a couple of Proverbs for you. Proverbs 20, 18. It said, plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance, wage war. Proverbs 24, 6. By, for by wise guidance, you can wage your war. In abundance of counsel, there is victory. And this is one of the many reasons why we ought to have people in our life to get humble counsel. So we're not taking counsel in our own heart. To get humble counsel on decisions that we need to make that are not always easy to make. As we also mentioned here in our text, David is also humble and that he personally engaged in the battle. And what I mean here, David didn't tell his men to go do something that he himself was unwilling to do. He himself went with them into the battle. And we know that's not easy. What's easy, we know, is just to coach from the sidelines, or from the stands, I should say, to tell people to do things that we ourselves would never do. Friends, when it comes to picking our battles, whatever we feel led to do or not do, humility must be present. Second, pick your battles that are tied to your proximity. Meaning the closer your proximity, the more likely you are to engage. Now, this is just a general rule of thumb. Like everything in life, there are exceptions to the rule. But the battles we are to fight most often are the ones that personally involve us. Where like maybe personal relationship, personal stake, personal influence. And like none of those things are present. There's a great risk that we're fighting a battle that's actually not ours to fight. So now in the text, obviously for David, there's a lot of personal involvement for him in this situation. Like he was very close proximity to what had happened. His wives were among those who were captured. The men who he was in charge of, who he was entrusted with, likewise had their wives, their sons, their daughters captured. Even back up, the town of Ziklag, that's where David lived. Like close, close proximity to the situation. Now for us, as just a general rule of thumb, there's a situation where we have a lot of personal ties, a lot of personal responsibility, it's going to be a lot more likely that those are battles we are to engage in. But then on the other side, if there's a situation that's just not close to you, close to your responsibility, you have no personal involvement, no personal uh, real interest, more likely than not, that's just not your battle to fight. I mean, if you think about it, there is plenty of battles, I'm sure, going around uh, that area in David's time. He didn't fight all of them. He fought the ones that he was closely proximity to. Third, pick battles by trusting in God's good providence. So I mentioned earlier, in the providence of God, he directed David away from the battle in our text last week, a battle that he was not to fight in, to providentially lead into a battle in our text today that he was to fight. And then, in the good providence of God, as David was heading out to battle the Malachites, providentially, the Lord put the man of Egypt right in David's path, right? the exact person that they needed to come along their way, to give David and his men the exact information they needed. Right? The providential hand of God, right? it's all over this passage. Now for us, that's something we should be trusting in and searching for, right? the providential hand of God, to kind of help us, to lead us in whatever given situation we're in. The language we use as a church, right? this is evidence of God's grace. We should look for those even when picking our battles to see where his providential hand may be leading. Fourth, 
Pick your battles by being wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And I do think that, at least in part, David's model for us with the man of Egypt, you know, this man who's providence brought our way, was actually this right here. Wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Now, perhaps David simply gave this man food and water to revive his spirit, just because, like, simply and purely out of the goodness of his heart, right? Very possible. But at least to me, and actually a few commentaries I read this week, it kind of feels like David's like trying to like win this man to his side just in case he had information, which, which he clearly did. You know, to back up, what if when David first met this man, he quickly moved into some type of interrogation without really trying to build any relationship with him? I don't think it would have been likely for the man of Egypt to cough up the information the way that he did if David didn't first wisely approach him as being harmless of the, uh, as harmless as a dove. So for us friends, if we feel led to engage in battle, right, we can't go in most often with both guns blazing. Rather, we have to engage in battle wise as a serpent, yet harmless as a dove. Fifth. Let's get two more. Fifth. Pick your battles with the spirit of graciousness, which is tied to the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, we see a bit of this in our text today with the man of Egypt, who David was gracious towards. But as mentioned earlier, kind of in passing, where we're really going to see this will be in our text next week, where David is like incredibly gracious to the 200 who are too tired to move on from the brook. Now, I'm not going to share a lot here just because we're spending all of our time next week on that passage. But the 400 engaged in battle, they basically want to stick it to the guys who's laid behind. But in the text next week, David was gracious to these men. He didn't beat them down. Rather graciously, he's seeking to build them back up. And friends, may that be true of us as well. That we are seeking always to graciously build up others in the Lord. Which at times might mean we might need to engage in battle. To lovely confront issues. With the hopes that the confrontation will be used by the Lord in their life. To build them up. To, to graciously grow them. But other times, it might mean we might actually step away from the battle just to simply graciously bear one another's burdens in love. Friends, whatever you feel you need to do, whatever situation you might be in, do so with the spirit of graciousness. Last one. Six. Pick your battles by focusing on the truth that Christ has won the war. And that's always true for us, no matter what situation we might find ourselves in, no matter difficult situation we might be in. We must set our sights on the Lord Jesus Christ, who, unlike David, who, unlike us, was actually perfect in all his ways, where he always fought the right battles, including the battle against sin, a battle that he fought on our behalf through his death and resurrection from the dead, where through his death and resurrection, Jesus, he won the war. He won the war against sin, against death, against the devil. He's the one who brings about peace. Because it was in his death, Jesus, like he stood in the place of sinners to be our representative, to fight the battle for us on the cross, where humbly Jesus willingly, graciously laid down his life to take on the judgment of God that burns over sin, including the sins that we have made when we made wrong decisions when it comes to picking our battles. Right? Jesus bore all of those sins upon himself for his people, he died for his people, only to pick his life back up on the third day. And friends, because Jesus Christ died and because he rose again, 
He gives the promise that all who by faith turn from sin and turn to him, like you will find forgiveness. You will find eternal life. You will have a relationship with him that will never be severed. So friends, as you and I, as you try to discern whether or not to pick battles, we must do so by looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must do so understanding that he is the great victor. He is the one who won the war. He is the one who through his blood that was shed, through his wounds, we can find peace. Let's go back to my conversation with the retired pastor that I had when I was a young associate pastor. No. It's not easy to discern what battles we are to fight or not fight. But friends, this morning, the one thing we must discern and continue to discern is our need for Jesus. That's the one thing we must get right. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that in the end, he's the one who fought the battle for us. A battle that we could never fight on our own. A battle that certainly we could never win on our own. Thank you that through Jesus there are forgiveness of sin. Thank you that he is the true and great and eternal victor. And uh, Lord, this morning, please help us to discern all the various things you'd have us to do, including when it comes to picking our battles. And within that, Lord, I pray that ultimately help us just to uh, set our eyes on Christ. Give us hope in him this morning. In his name we pray. Amen.